Welcome to Sex Spoken Here with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I am a sex coach and relationship psychologist and created this show to help you solve any sexual problems, learn about all things sexy, sensual, and intimate, and create your ideal lasting relationship. In my virtual therapy room, I answer questions, interview experts, and provide tips that you can use straight away. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create a problem-free, exciting sex life. Make sure you join us to be up to date on all events and to easily access coaching at www.the-intimacy-coach.com. Welcome to my virtual therapy room. I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee, and this is Sex Spoken Here. Remember that this podcast deals with adult themes, so if you don't have privacy, you might wish to put on your headphones. Some of the things that I'm going to discuss today may be disturbing, so this is an official trigger warning. Today, I'm starting a series that is different from the ones I usually do. Since I started this podcast, I've covered different topics to do with sex, sexuality, gender, and relationships over two or three weeks, looking at each topic in moderate depth. In this new series, I'm interviewing people from all walks of life about their journeys to sexual authenticity and integration. Different people are in different places on their journeys. Some are close to the beginning, others in the middle, and still others have reached a place of authenticity and integration, and their journeys are focused on more pleasure and more learning. For each journey, I'll give a short summary and I will provide some advice or tips for further learning or help if you need it with any of the issues talked about during the story. It's my hope that you will see yourself somewhere in these stories and you will gain support and inspiration from them. Some of them are really hard in places and they also contain great joy. Your sexual story is as unique as your lip print, which by the way is unique as your fingerprint, your nose print ear print, and your eyes. My journey is a long one, so grab a cup of tea, coffee, or your favorite tipple, any nibbles you choose, and get comfortable. When you listen to these stories, try to listen without judgment. Reflect on your own story and each unique piece that makes you authentically you. We're going to start with me. Many people that believe that all good stories begin once upon a time. But that beginning is for a fairy tale and my story starts in the real world. As a preteen, my fantasies were about having a master and living in a bottle like the show I Dream of Jeannie. I created a decorated bottle to live in when I was nine. I didn't know why I wanted this, I just did. By the time I reached my teens, the fantasy was more detailed. There were masters and mistresses and other slave women, for that is how I saw the genie. I was sexually precocious for a number of reasons that I'll leave for another day. At 13, I was desperate to lose my virginity, but I was ashamed of my desire. I got it in my head that doing so at 13 would be too young and therefore make me a slut. So I decided to wait until after my 14th birthday. I had a boyfriend at the time, and I made him wait until 10 days after my 14th birthday. Before my birthday, I discovered the joys of blowjobs. I loved the feeling that giving a blowjob gave me, and my boyfriend counted himself lucky. 
My boyfriend's parents were divorced. He was 16 and lived with his mom. She didn't mind him bringing me to his bedroom. As a result, I lost my virginity in a comfortable room, in a clean, comfortable bed, with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon album playing on the stereo. We used condoms, and he was careful to work on arousing me before the first penetration. There was nothing at all traumatic about the experience. It hurt a little, but within a few minutes it was feeling good. It was a great entry to the world of fucking, and I've been grateful for this ever since. When I finally did experience traumatic sex, I knew that sex could be seriously good, which meant that I knew that in theory it could be good again. Shortly after this, I had my first proper girlfriend. I had fooled around with some of my female friends earlier, kissing here and there, an occasional fondle. But S was my first real girlfriend. With her, I discovered the joys of eating pussy. And at the time, I preferred to be the one giving, not receiving. It was interesting to me that I actually didn't feel very uncomfortable about my relationship with another woman. I hadn't really at that time come across any kind of negative uh, messages about same-sex partnerships. So I just thought, I'm attracted to this person. This is how it is. My desires to be forced, to be a slave, to be told what to do just increased as time went on. At 14, I got involved with Perry, who was 18, while I was at summer camp. I was a camper, and he worked in the kitchen. I thought he was so sexy. He wrote poetry, and he would read it to me. It wasn't long before my parents broke us up. The age difference was the main reason. I hadn't even entered high school, and he'd already graduated and was headed to university. Now, my parents at that time did not know that I was having sex. Perry introduced me to proper erotica. As I was and still am a voracious reader, I was in heaven. I was relieved to see that there were other people like me who had cravings like mine. None of my friends who I tried to confide in understood my cravings at all. I would end up feeling shamed when I spoke about my desires, so I quickly learned not to speak of them. I also loved sex and had no desire for a monogamous relationship. This had me labeled as a slut yet again. The girls I got involved with didn't want me to be with boys. The boys I got involved with wanted me to bring girls I liked home so they could watch, but they weren't happy if I saw them separately. High school was filled with experimentation and promiscuity. I did not feel good about myself, however. I had really accepted and internalized what other people were saying, that there was something wrong with me wanting the things I wanted, something wrong with wanting sex with more than one person, and something wrong with wanting both boys and girls. I read the story of O and returned to the chateau. At 15, while at summer school, I saw the movie. I also saw the movie Swept Away with Giancarlo Giannini. I read Nine and a Half Weeks, but I still hadn't yet had a relationship that included much more than pushing my head down when I was giving head. So no real BDSM, no real power exchange, even though I devoured everything I could find on it. I went off to university at 17 in the autumn of 1980. I was registering for English classes when I saw a lithe man with long hair and a goatee who was smoking a pipe. I fell for him before we even spoke. His presence struck me. 
And when he introduced myself, I, himself, I was stammering. Jay and I began a relationship shortly after. Our sex had a more than a little power exchange. There was some breath play and there was lots of intensity. It was electrifying. This was what I had been fantasizing about since I was nine or so I thought. Our relationship was cut short by his live-in girlfriend just before the end of my freshman year. By this point, I was a bit less ashamed of my desires. Some of them had come just part of me. I didn't feel bad about my love for men and women anymore. I no longer beat myself up because I often loved more than one person at the same time. I still felt pressured to fit into my parents' model of relationships, but I was away at university, so I felt a degree of freedom to experiment. I started sophomore year with a renewed relationship with Jay, with Dee's agreement. This was my first proper foray into ethical non-monogamy, and it fit me beautifully. I was thrilled to be able to be honest, and I certainly didn't want just one partner. The first semester was filled with exploration and lots of seriously hot sex. I had a small amount of shame about my desire to engage in rough sex and be dominated, but I was feeling better and better about myself. At the end of May, Dee introduced me to Alton, telling me, I think you two will really hit it off. Alton was 26 years old and I was just 19. He was tall, slender, with burnt sienna skin, a longish brown fro with a small white stripe that reminded me of a lightning bolt. His eyes were captivating and his voice hit me right in the pussy. Deep and smooth, liquid with plenty of bass. The attraction was immediately. We went out for a bite after work. Alton drew all sorts of information out of me during that first talk. Looking back, I was really unsophisticated and I didn't see how he was leading me. But of course, at 19, I thought I knew everything. By the time the evening came to an end, I was lost. He took me home, kissed me goodnight and arranged to see me the next day. I don't think I got a wink of sleep that night. Alton told me that women he dated had to agree to obey him or he didn't get involved. He promised me we would go slowly, and if there was anything I truly did not want to do, he would not press me. He was one of my fantasies come to life, so it didn't take me long to agree. I knew nothing about negotiation or, or truly very little about consent. The next night, Alton came over and we had sex for hours. It was hot intense sex. He was very large, so it took me being extremely aroused to manage his size. When I gagged on him, he pulled back and he helped me relax and try again. It got easier to manage his size even when he was controlling the action. Orgasm had mostly eluded me during fucking and or having any kind of penetrative sex, and my male lovers to that point didn't eat pussy. But orgasm with Alton felt easy his hands pulling my head back, his teeth on my neck and breasts while he pounded into me just seemed to work for me. This was 1982 and I used a diaphragm for birth control so I didn't use condoms. I was careful the diaphragm was properly inserted because I didn't want to get pregnant. I didn't worry much about disease as I believed all the myths of the time about catching diseases and most of the things I might catch were relatively easily curable. I was like most of my peers, 
we felt invincible. After a few days, Alton stopped leaving my place in the morning. He didn't move stuff in, but he stayed. Ten days after we first went out, we headed out for a drink, and I noticed his attitude was more serious. Um, I'd wash my diaphragm out in the morning, and I'd put it on the, the um, counter. Um, and before we went out, I looked for it, but it wasn't there. I didn't really think much of it. I just thought, well, I must have misplaced it. There was an edge to him that I hadn't seen before. At the time, I didn't know he was withdrawing from cocaine. He had a cocaine addiction that I knew nothing about. Chalk this up to my naivety. He actually used intravenously and I didn't pick it up. His withdrawal was making him really ratty. I didn't have access to any money to give him. My bills were paid by my parents. And my extra money came from the same job that Alton had, telesales. I was a supervisor in the office checking sales made by the others. We did not make a lot of money. We got to the bar and Alton began to interrogate me. He asked questions about my other lovers. He demanded details about what I had done and how I had felt. He told me he didn't believe I was committed to him. He told me he thought I was a fake, not a true submissive, not really willing to obey. I felt confused, hurt, and terribly scared that he would leave me. I was having the best sexual relationship of my life, and I developed really strong feelings for him. I didn't want to lose him. By the time we left the bar, I was feeling off balance. We were halfway down Brookline Ave when he pushed me into a doorway and down to my knees. He demanded I suck him off. I was overwhelmed, frightened, but really a little excited. My hesitation was met with a growl of obey. I did, and when he finished, he dragged me to my fleet and we headed back to my flat. That evening, things changed. Alton was rough and mean in his handling of me, so at the end of the day, I said no. I told him I wanted him to leave. He laughed at me. He came for me with a closed fist and began to beat me. He used his hands, his fists, his feet, and then anything he could grab. At one point, he beat me with a broomstick. I was shocked, and I struggled, but it did no good. He was far stronger than I. I screamed, but no one came. Eventually, I was exhausted and I just took the beating. When he finished, I couldn't put my legs together because my thighs were far too bruised. For five days, Alton kept me captive. He beat me repeatedly. He raped me repeatedly. He humiliated me. Twice, he choked me until there was no breath in me and I died. When I came back to the world, it was to him pounding on my chest and giving me mouth to mouth. He fed me nothing. He poured alcohol down my throat. Friends came to see me, but I was too afraid to say what was going on directly. I was convinced he was going to kill me. I tried to use code. On the sixth morning, Alton got up, showered, dressed, and told me he was going out for the day, and I wasn't to talk with anyone or to leave the house. An hour after he left, Jay came by and found me shaking and weak. My face was covered in little red dots, petechial hemorrhages, because he'd burst all the capillaries when he strangled me. The bruising on my vulva and inner thighs was so severe that my skin was black. Blue-black. 
I told Jay I needed to get away that I was in danger. I packed a gym bag with socks, a t-shirt, sweats, and a butcher knife, a set of handcuffs, my jewelry, and my journal. I wouldn't tell Jay where I was going because I was afraid Alton would find out, but I told him I would let him know when I was safe. I went into Cambridge and I was lucky that a good Samaritan found me because I was wandering aimlessly and so I could have been taken and raped again. Instead, this man took me to a cafe and bought me a meal. I had absolutely no money with me. He helped me to contact Dee and she met me at the hospital. The rape exam is a story for another time, as is the story of the police preliminary hearing and the eventual plea bargain because the district attorney was afraid to try to prosecute rape when I had slept with Alton consensually before, even though they figured there were 37 separate counts of rape over that five-day period. I developed post-traumatic stress disorder after this event. Probably no surprise. I entered therapy quickly with a lovely older man who was a Jungian analyst. I remember very little about the contents of the therapy, except that I remember a warm, non-judgmental presence who helped me to be able to breathe and continue my studies, but who was unable to help me get rid of the nightmares, flashbacks, intrusive thoughts, and the intense shame that despite all that Alton did to me, I still wanted rough sex and a dominant partner, and there were some things that he did to me that I would fantasize about. I found myself attracted to older men who had an edge. These turned out to be Vietnam veterans who had post-traumatic stress disorder. It was a strange coincidence. I was now 20 years old, and there really wasn't anywhere I came into contact with veterans on a regular basis. But I got involved with three of them in a row. All of them were 16 years or more older than I. All of them were dominant. But only with the last one did I enter any kind of stated power exchange relationship. My liaisons with women during this time were fleeting, and all of my sexual relationships were tinged with shame. Trust had become a huge issue. I graduated from university, and I relocated to North Carolina, where I met S. This was my next power exchange relationship, and I fell into it without really knowing what was happening. I spent the next year exploring the dynamics of, dom of a dominant-submissive relationship. There was just one problem. I couldn't surrender. I couldn't submit properly. I wanted so badly to, but I couldn't let go. Orgasm eluded me, as it had mostly since Alton, because orgasm meant losing control, and losing control was dangerous. I was fine if I was masturbating because I was safe and on my own but with a partner, orgasm was nigh on impossible. In the autumn, I left North Carolina for graduate school in clinical psychology in Southern California. Throughout graduate school, I took reckless sexual risks. The combination of PTSD and um, depression and an incredible amount of shame and self-hatred led me to be incredibly risky. I hooked up with strangers to try out various kinks and BDSM. Looking back, I'm lucky that I was not injured or killed. I was in therapy during this time, still trying to get my PTSD symptoms to go away and deal with the depression. They did not. Hypervigilance had me walking around the house at night, checking windows and doors repeatedly. I lived with G for a year, and this was a wonder. 
he taught me that orgasm was much more likely if someone was eating my pussy. I had a girl, couple of girlfriends who added evidence to this lesson. I hooked up with J, G, and T from university and indulged in group sex. I spent time on CompuServe and on computer bulletin boards, talking with people who were masters, slaves, tops, bottoms, and into all sorts of kinks. I went to private parties and underground clubs. I met Kay and had a whirlwind romance with elements of all my desires, and it ended badly. I got involved with a woman who insisted that I was truly a lesbian and that the reason I was sexually unsatisfied was that I hadn't found the right woman. She wasn't the right one. This happened a lot um, and sometimes still happens. Both men and women have felt the need to explain to me that if I found the right insert gender here, I would be het or gay or monogamous or I wouldn't want kink or I wouldn't be into BDSM. And all of them seem to think that they were the right one. I met my first husband at a conference on post-traumatic stress disorder and a treatment method called traumatic incident reduction. His British accent did me in. He was tall with dark hair, a mustache and pale skin, extremely good looking. And I was on the rebound. The initial sex was good, but it was pretty vanilla. He was dominant in terms of personality. He was forceful, but pretty straight. There was no orgasm for me, but I really enjoyed the sex. I signed up to experience traumatic incident reduction and I spent a week working intensively with a facilitator. It was nothing short of miraculous. At the end of that week, my symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder were gone and most of them were never to return. I still have the occasional hypervigilance in certain situations and can get tactile defensive when things have been triggered off. Tactile defensive is when you absolutely can't stand anybody touching you. But these are rare. I had my energy back. I was no longer depressed. I could sleep. I had no more flashbacks. Three months later, I agreed to marry Stephen. And three months after that, I was living in the United Kingdom. Stephen was an alcoholic. I hadn't really understood that until he went into withdrawal before our first wedding date and ended up in hospital with a gastric bleed. He agreed to stop drinking and he did so for three years. I can hear people cheering and say that that was wonderful. I gotta tell you, those three years were a nightmare. Alcoholics who stop drinking are crazy for the first year or two of recovery, depending on the severity of of their addiction and the length of the addiction and whether they're working a program. He was not working a program. Our sex life was sporadic and not satisfactory for either of us. I remember clearly when I complained that he didn't wait for me to get even close to coming, he said that he didn't care if I came as long as he got his. When Stephen started drinking again, it got worse. I had sex 12 times in eight years. For that and other reasons, I finally left. I met up with N four months later. He gave me the permission I was seeking to play again. After eight years of no sex and at 35 years old, I was back out in the single world. I did some personal development work and some personal spiritual work that left me feeling comfortable with my desire to submit, surrender, be dominated, and even comfortable with my more masochistic desires. 
left me feeling comfortable with my desire for non-monogamy and very happy in my bisexuality. I told N that I was finally ready to go back and explore BDSM and the rest of my kink. We enjoyed swinging together and have stayed family to this day. And six months later, I met my second husband, F. Now, in hindsight, my hormones were driving my choice of partner at that time. I was unaware how badly my body wanted to reproduce. I wanted a baby. I had actually decided it would be okay if I didn't have one, but my body did not agree. F is 12 years younger than I am, and he was happy to be a stay-at-home dad. He was relatively inexperienced sexually, and it was quickly apparent that we weren't sexually compatible. But my hormones drove me forward. I wanted a baby, and time was running out. I need to point out that this was not at all conscious. I was unaware that this was what was driving me. Before we married, we clearly made a contract about ethical non-monogamy. Our rules were that we needed to talk with each other before seeing another person, and that each of us had the right to say we didn't want a relationship to begin or continue. F wasn't interested in any of the kink that captivated me, but I wasn't concerned because I could find other partners to meet those needs. In theory, I should have it should have worked well. In practice, it was a disaster. I had my incredible son, and I became very ill. My sex life with F was non-existent. I began exploring again and following the terms of our ethical non-monogamy. Fairly quickly, I caught F lying about an online hookup and making plans to bring her to our home when I was away on a business trip. He apologized and said it wouldn't happen again. Two years later, he had a real-life affair that lasted over six months. He told me when the husband of the woman he had the affair with threatened to tell me. We separated six months after I found out about the affair. I spent time in 2004 and 2005 at a sex-positive BDSM and BDSM events in the UK. Time I spent running around with a pro-dom, a pro-master, and their pro-slave really got me to a place where I felt totally comfortable with my sexual self. I finally felt I was able to express myself authentically congruently, and with no apologies. I was in a relationship when I found out about F's affair. I continued to pursue this relationship, and six months later, headed to a spirituality conference in Northern California. There, I met TJ, my current husband. We talked a lot, and the electricity was apparent throughout, but we didn't act on it. We maintained our friendship through Facebook, and then through Skype calls. We had lunch when I visited my boyfriend three months after we first met, and this led to our first kiss. He threw me over the bonnet of his car in the midst of a main road in Hollywood. The kiss was so hot, we stopped traffic. Ours was a negotiated power exchange relationship from the start. We spent time talking and negotiating and being clear about the form we wanted our relationship to take. Four months later, I accepted his collar. This was in 2009. In 2010, we attended our first public kink event together. It was at this event that I met a butch woman with whom I would have a tumultuous two-year dominant-submissive relationship. 
He was there with his wife and the four of us got along really well. It was 2011 before we managed to hook up and the relationship started with lots of promise. In 2010, TJ and I started attending an annual BDSM event for people of color, which led to attending an annual sex positive BDSM event for people of color. We've developed a circle of friends, some of whom are playmates. We have the opportunity to play in public, play as a couple with another couple, indulge in some threesomes, and generally have a fantastic time. When my relationship with the woman I met in 2010 ended in 2013, I, ended, I entered another relationship with a woman I was close friends with to that point. Since then, I've maintained a number of relationships with women, and I adore my women-only time. I attend a woman's leather event that is sex positive every year in the summer. I finally live in congruence. My sexuality is expressed authentically and I'm free to continue to learn and explore. I no longer have any shame about who I am or how I choose to live my life. I love my husband, my beloved girlfriend, my friends with benefits. I love attending sex positive events and trying new things even at the age of 54. I'm grateful to all the people who have walked a part of this journey with me, including Alton, without whom I would not be the person I am today. Alton forced me to look at myself from all angles, to learn to love every part of myself because I could not recover from what he did with me otherwise. Today, I live in a polyamorous power exchange relationship with a bisexual man. I have a relationship with another bisexual woman and a number of friends with benefits. And I am content. Today, I talked about sexual trauma, shame, dominance, submission, BDSM, kink, bisexuality, and non-monogamy. If any of these resonate for you and you need some help with any issues that arise, please email me at drbisbee at theintimacycoach.com. That's D-R-B-I-S-B-E-Y at the-intimacy-coach.com. And I can provide you with resources for further learning, or set up a discovery session to talk about what might help you further. I have a treasure trove of resources on all of these topics, and I'm happy to provide you with a bunch of freebies. So do get in touch. Thanks for joining me for Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. If today's episode triggered you and you're feeling traumatized, be good to yourself today. If you have somebody that you can speak to in confidence, whom you trust, please take the time to talk with them until you're not feeling like you are in the midst of one of your own previous traumas or traumatized in general. If you don't have somebody to talk to in confidence, please be careful who you share with. Look after yourself. And again, Email me at drbisbee at the-intimacy-coach.com and I can provide you with some backup resources. 
or a discovery session to talk about what might help you further. Please write to me with suggestions for the show and questions you want answered at drbisbee at the-intimacy-coach.com. Do follow me on Twitter and Instagram where I'm at drbisbee, that's B-I-S-B-E-Y. And follow me on Facebook and check out my YouTube channel where I'm Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I have a channel on the Bonbon Network. Check it out. It is the A to Z of sex with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. For a free 30-minute strategy session with me, go to https colon forward slash forward slash the-intimacy-coach.com. Head over to the contact page and click the button that says schedule now. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review on iTunes and or Stitcher. I look forward to seeing you next week when we'll have another sex love story. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to Sex Spoken Here with Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes or on Stitcher. And make sure you head over to www.the-intimacy-coach.com to subscribe for free newsletter updates to help you create and sustain an exciting trouble-free sexual life. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes on all topics, sexy, sensual, and intimate. Thanks for listening.